0: If you have your Bible this morning, I hope you do, please turn to Luke 24. Luke chapter 24, we have taken a brief break from our study in 1 Peter in order to celebrate throughout this last week and on into today the wonder and awe of Christ's ascension. Christ's ascension, that moment when he was caught up 40 days after his resurrection in clouds of glory into the presence of his beloved Father in heaven is something that we as Christians, uh, we don't often think about very often. Uh, But we really should, because the ascension of Jesus Christ directly affects our day-to-day life as believers, whether we recognize it or not. Paul himself says in Ephesians 2, verse 6, that God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him right now in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's remarkable when you think about that. Paul is making a direct connection between our current Christian life And the ongoing exaltation of Jesus in heaven. He's making a connection because there is one. Paul points this out in Colossians 3.3 when he says your life as a believer is hidden with Christ in God. So how do you explain the Christian life? I love this because this goes right along with what we've been seeing in 1 Peter. How do you explain the Christian life? You don't explain it by looking in. You explain it by looking up. You look up from the branches to the vine. You look up from the members to the head. You look up from believers to our exalted Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we are receiving, in a very real sense, a portion of His own exalted life, spiritually. And so because the ascension is so full of Christ's glory and is so central to our own lives, we really ought to study it and celebrate it as a church together. We started to do that last week from Luke 24, verses 50 through 53, where we saw that the ascension points to our promise as believers, proves our protection, and pictures our power. First, the ascension of Jesus Christ. His exaltation points to our promise that just as Jesus personally and bodily departed from the Mount of Olives in accordance with the Scriptures, one day He's personally returning and bodily to the Mount of Olives in accordance to the Scriptures as well. Jesus is coming soon. The ascension reminds us of that promise. Second, the ascension proves our protection. After His... Or at his ascension, Jesus lifted up his hands and blessed those of us who would come after him, that his presence would be with us, his grace would sustain us, and his peace would protect us, that we would be safe in the love of Jesus. And then he ascended on high as Lord of all to guarantee that blessing to his followers. The ascension points to our promise, it proves our protection. And last, we saw last week that the ascension pictures our power. Because when Christ blessed us, those who would come after Him, He did so as He was ascending into heaven, meaning that He was not only passing on a part of His job description, but also the power and ability to carry it out in this world—the very power that comes from the exalted Christ on high. So the ascension points to our promise, proves our protection, and pictures our power. Today we're going to see that uh, we're going to see the glory of Christ's ascension continue, as we see at the end of verse 51 that the ascension first proclaims our proponent meaning that christ is for us in this life and the implications of that as i was studying it over these last two weeks are staggering second we're going to see in verse 52 that the ascension passes on our purpose that christ has ascended and we remain for a reason And then finally in verse 53, we're going to discover that the ascension provokes our praise. In other words, it deepens and it strengthens our worship of Jesus when we remember the exaltation of Christ. So this is the awe of Christ's ascension. It highlights the glories of the promise, the protection, the power, the proponent, the purpose, and the praise that belongs to us as those who are in the exalted Christ. And so with that in mind, let's read Luke 24 verses 50 through 53 if you would please stand with me as we read this passage of scripture together luke chapter 24 starting at verse 50 luke the doctor under the inspiration of the holy spirit writes these words to us today and again i'm going to back up for context verse 44 that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Verse 50. Then he led them out as far as Bethany and lifted up his hands lifting up his hands he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple worshiping God. Blessing God. This is the word of God of which our tongues sing, because all his commandments are right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning. I am eager to preach it, but I am insufficient. So Father, I pray that your spirit would come alongside the teaching of your word Father, I pray that you would teach us this morning. Open up minds and hearts to understand and to see the glory of Jesus. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us hearts to believe and to obey and to run in the way of your commandments. Father, I pray that you would honor and glorify yourself in your people today and make us more faithful worshipers of Jesus as we examine this morning His exalted glory. He is above all. So, Father, help us to live like it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, after Luke shows us the glory of Christ's ascension, that it points to our promise, and it proves our protection, and it pictures our power. He then shows us that the ascension proclaims our proponent. The good news continues. After Luke writes that he had blessed them and parted from them, That while he blessed them, he was parted from them. Luke then tells us, and he that is Jesus was carried up where? It says, into heaven. Now that might seem like an insignificant detail this morning to specify that the location that Jesus was going to was into heaven. But it is not an insignificant detail, especially when you consider the alternatives. I want you to think for a moment Of this thought, what if Jesus hadn't gone into heaven? What if Jesus had risen from the dead, and what if he had just remained here on earth, doing what he had done over the last 40 days, uh, and just kept on teaching and instructing in the kingdom of heaven? Do you think that that setup would be better? And I want you to really think about that. Do you think that you would be a better Christian right now if Jesus was still around and the ascension had never happened? Or to put it another way, do you look at the disciples and envy them? Do you think that you would be a better Christian right now if Jesus had not ascended? If that is your tendency... To think that, I want you to know, that is not the truth. Jesus did not go into heaven reluctantly to the result of our spiritual detriment. Jesus went into heaven eagerly for the result of our spiritual betterment. It was thinking of us that drove him back into the presence of his father. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he began the most personal and pastoral phase of his ministry ever. As Hebrews 9.24 states, Christ has now appeared in the presence of God. Why? On our behalf. That is, for our benefit. Jesus went into heaven for us. That is why I say he is our proponent, the one who is for us in heaven. And it is there, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high in heaven, that Jesus has become our divine advocate, intercessor, in fact, lack of a better term, our divine donor. These are the three major ways that the exalted Christ is for us right now on high as our proponent. At least after two whole weeks of studying on this, this is the best short summary I can give. So first, I want you to know that in light of our accuser, christ is our divine advocate see revelation 12 10 teaches us that as yet satan is not bound he accuses us before the father day and night as first peter 5 8 puts it satan's like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour and so every time we sin satan pounces on that he's like a prosecuting attorney trying to submit our sin, our daily sin, as evidence for our condemnation before God. And because he's so filled with malice and contempt, Satan does this tirelessly day and night. And he will continue to do so until the moment of God's final judgment at the great white throne in Revelation 20.10 where Satan and all those who followed him will be judged and silenced in their accusations forever. Satan is so consumed with this that one of his titles in Scripture is accuser of the brethren. Well, guess what? In the midst of this constant accusation, Christ has ascended into the very throne room of heaven to be our constant advocate. As 1 John 2, 1 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, and we all do, we have an advocate. Where? With the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. And there it is. It is there by His very presence that every single accusation leveled against us crumbles without a word. For as Satan attempts to submit our sin as evidence against us, there sits Jesus with the wounds that testify to our redemption eternally, paid in full. As Charles Wesley wrote in that hymn, five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayer. They strongly plead for me. Forgive, forgive, they cry. Forgive, forgive, they cry. Nor let let that ransomed sinner die. Christ need not say a word. His exalted presence is eternal evidence forever, submitted to the courtroom of heaven that we have been redeemed. And it is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, as Romans 8 verse 1 says. Every accusation crumbles before the presence of our Advocate. As Hebrews 10 verses 12 through 14 puts it, When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Praise God. In light of our accuser, Christ is our divine advocate. He is for us. Second, in light of our infirmities, Christ is our divine intercessor. See, one of the things the scripture teaches us, is that we as humanity are weak and infirmed. It's true before Christ. In Romans 5, verse 6, it tells us that before coming to faith in Jesus Christ, we were still weak because of our sins. Well, guess what? Even after coming to Christ, our spiritual weakness still exists because of the sinfulness of our flesh. As Jesus says in Matthew 26, verse 41, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is what? It's weak. And so, if making it to heaven, listen to this, if making it to heaven was dependent on our own spiritual strength, we all would fail utterly. We would all fall because we are weak. But praise God, in light of our infirmity, Christ is our divine intercessor. As Romans 8.34 states, who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised. In fact, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He is our proponent. He has gone into the presence of God in heaven to intercede for us and to guarantee for us the spiritual strength that you and I need every single day to resist sin and to live for God and to endure this the trials and temptations of this world. He, as Hebrews 7.25 says, consequently he that is Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Well, that's a powerful verse that deserves its own sermon. But what it's saying is this. Jesus is able to save us to those who draw near, who, who recognize they need to draw near to God through Christ Jesus, Jesus is able to save them. He is able to bring us all the way, save us to the othermost. He is able to save us all the way to glory. Why? Because He always lives to make intercession for us. Christ's intercession is the guarantee of our spiritual endurance and strength, even unto heaven. He loses not a one of His own. As Jesus said in Luke 22, verses 31 through 32, Simon, Simon, Satan demanded to have you, to sift you like wheat. But I have done what? Prayed for you so that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, go and strengthen your brothers. Why did Peter's faith survive that intense trial and not fail, right? Was it because Peter was strong? Oh my word, no. If you study the narrative, absolutely not. He crumbles before a servant girl. Peter's faith did not survive because he was strong. Peter's faith survived because Jesus was interceding for him. Likewise, beloved, in light of our infirmities, Jesus is right now at the right hand of God. Scripture says, interceding for him now that, and i want to be clear that does not mean that jesus is right now having to beg and plead the father to give us the grace and the faith and the strength that we need for the day as if god was reluctant and christ had his work cut out for him that's not what scripture's teaching no as jesus says himself in john 16:27, the father himself loves you He's not reluctant. Not at all. What Christ's intercession here means is that Christ, by His very presence, guarantees for us, for all of us who are in Him, who draw near to God through Him by faith, it guarantees that every spiritual blessing Heaven has to give is ours. As John Calvin wrote, we must not suppose that Christ humbly begs the Father on bended knees and extended hands. No, rather, as he who has died and risen again appears continually in the place of eternal intercession on our behalf, Christ's near presence has the effectiveness of a powerful prayer in guaranteeing the Father's eternal pleasure towards us who are his own. In other words, as the Father looks upon the glory of his exalted Son, the Father pours out on Christ all the blessedness that their eternal communion has enjoyed since before the ages began. Only now, with Christ as our exalted head and we in him, now all of those heavenly blessings that Christ receives, we now receive in him. And every petition that you and I could ever make towards the Father for more mercy or more grace to help us in our time of need is already guaranteed and answered in this one single glorious fact. That you are in Him. In the Beloved One. In Jesus, your exalted Savior and Lord. And so God's blessings and eternal good pleasure towards us is ensured. Not because of our actions, but because of Christ. All He is and all He's done. It's ensured in Christ Jesus, who is our intercessor. And so Christ entered into heaven for us. I want you to see on our behalf, as our proponent, in light of our accuser, He's our advocate. In light of our infirmities and weaknesses, He's our intercessor. And finally, in light of our deficiency, Christ is our divine donor talked about how when someone blesses someone at the end of their departure, remember last week, right, a little bit of their job description is passed on. And then in a very real sense, you and I as believers in Jesus Christ stand in the position of Christ here on earth representing him. It's pretty weighty. Paul, when he was considering the immensity of the task that was set before him to know Christ and to make him known... He exclaimed in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 16, Who is sufficient for these things? I mean, that's the thought that goes through every pastor, when he, if he's the right type of pastor, every time he walks up to the pulpit. Who's sufficient for these things? He felt woefully inadequate and deficient when it came to being a minister of the gospel. And that's why Paul writes later in 2 Corinthians 3 5, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Who has made us sufficient? So you say, well, what, what brought the turnaround? How come Paul could say, well, I, I am insufficient? And now, how could he say, well, no, I actually can do this? What made the difference? How has God made you and I sufficient to do the ministry of the gospel here in this world? He has done it by his Spirit. As Ephesians 4, 7-8 says, grace has been given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he, that is Jesus, ascended on high, he he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. You see, Jesus said in John 16, verse 7, nevertheless I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When Jesus ascended on high, he sent the Holy Spirit. And in the Holy Spirit, Christ gave gifts to men. Spiritual gifts. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And so while we would be utterly insufficient to know Christ and to make him known in this world, we have been, Jesus is in heaven as our divine donor and he has given to us he has given to us the Holy Spirit through whom we are made sufficient for this ministry. Christ has made us sufficient by means of the gift and the giving of the Holy Spirit. And so by ascending into heaven as our conquering king, Christ is now positioned to give us the spoils of his victory that he has won. So don't overthink if God is calling you to do something. Don't ever think you can't do it. Remember your exalted, Lord. And, and all of this is because Christ has ascended where? Into heaven. Into heaven. So believer, do you think that you would be a better Christian if Christ had not ascended? If you did not have right now at the Father's right hand a divine advocate, intercessor, and donor? Absolutely not. Christ has appeared in the heavenly places on our behalf glory of glories it really is to our advantage that he went away and truly he has entered into the presence of God on our behalf it is there in heaven that Jesus became for us our divine advocate our divine intercessor and our divine donor and that is I want you to know just a brief such a faulty summary of everything that Jesus is doing on our behalf right now There is so much more that could be said. The British Puritan Henry Pendleton wrote this, and it reflects my spirit rather well. He says, to think of all the privileges and advantages that have come to you by Jesus ascending into heaven and remaining there for you. Why they are so many, I can only mention a few. They that have have Christ in heaven for them have a right to him. And they have a right to all the benefits which believers can receive from his passion, ascension, and intercession. In these few words, I have just told you of greater privileges than if I had said that you had the unquestionable right to all the crowns and the great things of this present world. For they are all nothing next to Christ. Believer, through Jesus, you have liberty to go to heaven upon all occasions, at any time, out of any place, and lay all your matters before him who is able to do exceedingly abundant above all that we could ever ask or think. In short, we always have a ready advocate in heaven who is seated there continually for us. This is why we ought to study and celebrate the ascension of Christ together as believers. Because the ascension proclaims to us our proponent. We are not alone in this world. Christ is for us. We have a powerful advocate We have an effective intercessor. We have a divine donor who's exalted on high, and therefore he is able to save us and carry us throughout this life to the uttermost on into glory. He is able to keep us going and get us across that finish line so that we will be able to be there on the last day without spot or wrinkle or any such thing so that we might be holy and without blemish. Man, could there be a more encouraging thought? Though we have few thoughts of Jesus, he remains ever mindful of us. And though we often fail to pray, he ever lives to make intercession for us. The ascension reminds us of this, that Christ is for us. He is our proponent. We ought to worship him as our exalted Lord. So we ought to study and celebrate the ascension of Christ together because the ascension proclaims our proponents. Second, second, the ascension passes on our purpose. That's in verse 52. Luke tells us that after Jesus was carried up into heaven, it says they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem. How? Man, with great joy. With great joy. At this point, the focus shifts in Luke's narrative. Up to this point, Jesus has been the one that's doing all the actions, and now it becomes the disciples, and we now get to see the impact that the ascension has on them. And Luke tells us first that they worshipped Him. That word means they hit the dirt. They they went face first into the ground as subjects that fall before their King. The disciples fell before the vision of the exalted Christ. That, that, That is a wonderful transformation. Because there were many times in the Gospels, man, when the disciples did not get it. I mean, they were literally walking with Jesus, arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Can you believe that? Yes, I can. Why? Because we argue the exact same thing in our churches today. Why do church splits happen? Because Jesus is not above all. And we've made something else more important than him. So, here at this moment, what have they done? Uh, After they beheld the glory of the exalted Jesus, they got it. Who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus. Jesus. Only Jesus. And I don't even see anyone else. Next to him, we're nothing. He is matchless and unique. He is transcendent and comparable. Behind Him or before Him, there is no other. Beneath the glory of the exalted Christ, they finally get it. I mean, He's literally in heaven, and they're like, no, I'm still way down here. They finally get it, and so that, t- and so now, as you're going to see throughout the book of Acts, as you continue Luke's narrative, uh, they're... Time is no longer going to be spent jockeying for positions of honor and influence. Their time is going to be wholly dedicated to being about their master's business, and that's what we see when Luke tells us that they worshipped him and did what? They returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Now, why did they do that? It's because that they understood that they had been given instructions and a mission. You see, just before our verses and I read them this morning, on purpose, just before these verses in verses 46 through 49, Jesus tells his followers there, "Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, it's all been prophesied. And then what? And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. In other words, this job is your now, is yours now, Jesus is saying. You have the baton. I'm going to heaven. I'm passing this mission on to you. Even as Jesus says in John 20:21, 20, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And so what are we to do? As believers, after Christ has ascended, we are to call on all men everywhere to repent of their sins and to believe the gospel and to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. We are to preach Jesus to the ends of the earth, beginning right where we are with the relationships we've already been given. That's our purpose. And in light of that purpose, this is the first step that the disciples were to take. Jesus says in Luke 24, 49, And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. You don't have to do this alone. I'm your proponent. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. In other words, this mission, this divine purpose for living, begin for the disciples in Jerusalem. And so where do the disciples rush back to? They rush back to Jerusalem. They rush back to being on mission, to fulfilling that purpose. Gone are the days when they would seek to exalt themselves and their own ambitions and their own desires and their own interests. Now it is Christ, Christ, only Christ. Forever and always. You say, well, what made the difference? They beheld the glories of the exalted Jesus and they realized that we are nothing and Christ is everything. And the world must know that. Brothers and sisters, I want you to realize something from this one verse. The disciples realized, just like we must, that there is a direct connection between the exaltation of Jesus Christ and the evangelism of the lost. Why do we not evangelize? Why do we not bring the gospel into the relationships we have? Might I contend it is because we do not highly prize Christ as highly as we ought. That's why. That's why. There is a direct connection between the exaltation of Christ and the evangelism of the lost. How do I know it? Scripture says it. Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 through 10 states this. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name that is above every name. That is ascension language, ladies and gentlemen. And what is the application of Christ's high exaltation? It's for you to live after your own dreams and your own ambitions. Is that what it says? No, it says so that at the name of Jesus every single knee should bow and every single tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Exaltation leads to evangelization. If Christ be preeminent, Christ must be proclaimed. The moment I retreat from that proclamation is when I've exalted something else higher than Christ. That might bite, but maybe it ought to. Brothers and sisters, this task is ours. Just like the disciples, we ought not to hesitate. They didn't hesitate. We ought to recognize the glories of this purpose. We get to stand in the place of the exalted Christ and proclaim his gospel to all creation. Beginning with our families, our friends, our classmates, and our co-workers, this is our purpose and this is our privilege. We ought to run towards it with great joy because Christ has given us his purpose. He has given us his power and he is established in heaven as our proponent so that the winds of heaven itself would be at our back in this. And that's why 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 is going to say real soon in our study that in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy so that you can then give an answer to those who ask you for the hope that is in you. Proclaim the hope of the gospel to those whom God has given you to reach. Because this is what the ascension reminds us of, right? Christ's exaltation reminds us of our evangelism. It reminds us of our purpose that has been passed on to us the further the gospel in this world. I wonder if the churches in America would be marked by less division and by more gospel witness if we, like the disciples, spent more time beholding in Scripture the glory of the exalted Christ. And this is why we ought to study and celebrate the ascension of Christ together because the ascension proclaims our proponent, passes on our purpose, and then finally, very briefly, the ascension provokes our praise. That's in verse 53 where Luke finishes his gospel with this, and they were continually in the temple doing what? Blessing God. Blessing God. This is where the ascension leaves you, right? What else would they be doing? They understood the ascension of Christ and all of its implications. Christ is ascended on high, having entered into the very presence of God on our behalf. That means something. That means that his life was acceptable. That means his sacrifice was pleasing. And that means that his resurrection was victorious. How do we know that? It's because Jesus, everything that he is and everything that he had done, had been accepted into the presence of God on high. Listen, the ascension of Jesus is the final detail of Luke's gospel. Because, in a a very real sense, the ascension of Jesus is the final detail of the gospel. It is the final detail of Christ's life that embraces and confirms everything that comes before it and everything that comes after it. Luke finishes his gospel here with the ascension of Christ because there's nothing left to say. The gospel has been achieved, redemption has been accomplished. There's nothing more to write, there's nothing more to say. There's nothing more to do. It's finished. We know this because Jesus is seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. He has conquered and he sat down with his father on his throne until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. And so the only thing for you and I now to do is to respond to this good news how? In worship. To live a life of gratitude. For what else would we do? As we study the ascension of Jesus and we meditate on our exalted Lord and his present ministry towards us in this very hour. And as we understand the glories of the promise, the protection, the power, the proponent, and the purpose that is now ours because of Christ's ascension. That provokes our praise. We come to understand that in light of Christ's ascension, the only proper response for you and I is to worship. For what else would we be doing? You know, in terms of salvation, there's no more work to be done. There's nothing we need to contribute. It's finished. All that must be done now is to worship the one who has done all the work. To give myself in gratitude to him every morning, every evening, every day and worship my seated and exalted Lord for the finished work that he has done. For what else would we be doing? Seriously, here we are on a Sunday morning. Okay? Let's make this very practical. We are gathered here together to worship God. Where else would I be? What else would I be doing? Because the gospel has been written, my redemption has been accomplished and my Savior is exalted. What else would I be doing? Brothers and sisters, in light of Christ's ascension, this must be our testimony. This must be my testimony, just as it was with the early church. Think about it. Well, where's Peter? Well, he's at the temple worshiping God. Christ is exalted. Where else would he be? Where's John? Well, he's at the temple worshiping God. Christ is exalted. Where else would he be? Can that be said of you this morning? Hey, where's Zach? Well, he's reading his Bible and he's praying to God. He's he's loving his brethren and he's loving his enemies. He's telling everybody he knows about Jesus. He's continually offering up his body as a living sacrifice to God in worship. That's That's what Zach is doing. Where else would he be? Christ is exalted. What else would he be doing? Where is Zach? That's Sunday. He's gathered together with his church family to sing the praises of him who has lived, died, risen, and ascended on high for his own. He is with the church, worshiping God. Where else would he be? Christ is exalted on high, what else would he be doing with his life? That's what I want to know. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what else should you be doing with your life? Brothers and sisters, the gospel is finished. Our redemption is won. Our Christ is exalted. And therefore, by our living and by our actions, we should devote ourselves this week to the exaltation of the one who is exalted let's worship the wonder of him who has ascended on high for what else would we be doing for we have seen the exalted christ we are nothing he is everything this is the awe of christ's ascension and this is the word of god from luke 24 verses 50 through 53 which i now commit to your further study and your faithful obedience in the fervent care of one another until he who is ascended into glory descends in glory on a day coming very soon. So to that end, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for how it shows to us the glory of Jesus. Father, help us to study and to celebrate the ascension of Christ together. Help us to talk of Jesus Not as a Jesus who was, but as a Jesus who is. Who is right now in your very presence as our proponent. Who has passed on to us his great purpose and mission. Father, help us to be faithful in this mission. Doing it all with great joy. Continually out of a heart of worship towards you. For what Jesus has done. Father, I pray that this week we would... Worship and serve our exalted Lord by our living and by our actions in all things. Help us not to live for ourselves, but for him who lived and died and rose again and ascended on high on our behalf, for that is why we exist. Give us grace in worshiping him this week, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.